The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. My name is Craig Carton and uh, as always, very, very uh, happy to have you join us for the next 30 minutes as we have a frank, open, honest conversation about gambling addiction. We don't espouse any particular beliefs and recognize that there's a lot of different ways to kind of kill the cat, if you will, and uh, come up with a solution that may help you or a loved one get through what is a very, very uh, tough addiction to fight. As always, joining me with the uh, Council on Compulsive Gambling in New Jersey is our friend Dan Trelauer. Danny, good morning. How are you? I'm well, Craig. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, very happy to have with us a uh, gentleman by the name of Mitch, who is uh, working on getting towards 20 years, having uh, conquered his addiction. And Mitch, I appreciate you joining us this morning. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So how many years has it been since your last wager, if you don't mind me asking? April 1st will be 16 years in the fellowship. Wow. Congratulations. You know, I found that a lot of people say, and I never thought of saying it this way, you know, a lot of people I've met throughout the last uh, nearly three years that I've gone without a wager, they say, you know, my last bet was, they give a date, but they always say, my last bet and loss was a specific date. Is that the same for you? Well, my last bet was actually in February of 2005. And when I came into the program, I had shared, you know, oh, my date was around February. And somebody in the fellowship came up to me and said, no, it's April 1st, the day you came in this fellowship is the day that your life will change for the better, and it did, and I've used that ever since. Got it. All right, so April 1st is your date. It'll be 16 years. If you don't mind sharing your story, how did your gambling begin? Was it like it is for so many of us, which was recreationally, responsibly, now and then, or was it a problem from Jump Street? No, I think there was a point that I had a control that it was recreational. I know I grew up with a family that played cards and football pools were flying around the house, and my brothers and dad would take me to the track, and I'd go to the track with them, and I'd be a young kid trying to say, hey, put this horse in for me, put this in for me. Right. Um, and, you know, 12 years old, I was, you know, playing white football tickets where you pick three games, and I was um, flipping coins and baseball cards with friends, and that's about the age I felt, like, the juices of gambling. Like, it was just so... It was such a rush. I really, really enjoyed it, and, and I loved doing it. Um, and it could be anything. It would be, you know, I'll bet you I could beat you across this football field. I just liked, you know, having a bet on something. Um, it's, so then, cra- it's crazy you say that because I just had a, a flashback, and if this is the first time right now in the moment I ever thought of this, and I'm glad you said it. You know, as a kid growing up, I remember Roosevelt Elementary School. You know, we had all those parlay cards, but I never associated – flipping baseball cards with gambling. And as I think about it right now in the moment, that's exactly what it was. And Dan, we've never talked about that. I know kids don't do that today, but I was kind of being, as as Mitch was, we were kind of being groomed as gamblers without even knowing it. Wow. Yeah. You know what? I'm thinking about the same thing. When I was in elementary school and middle school, bringing my baseball cards, football cards to school to try to win what other people you know, win something someone else had and flipping cards. I did the same thing. And I never really thought about that until Mitch just added that. You're right. We were, we were already perhaps showing signs of being comfortable 
taking risk and uncertainty even at that age. Yeah, it's crazy. I did, that was just a, such a weird epiphany for me hearing you say that. I've never heard that before. And uh, there's no doubt about it. You know, I was gambling at 8, 9, 10 years old trying to win, you know, a Bucky Dent card or whatever it might have been. So for you, Mitch, how did it manifest itself from there? Well, I guess I was about 20 years old. I remember getting, you know, I was putting bets in two friends. And then I remember I was hooked up with my own line. I had my own bookie now. Um, and I'll never forget. We always talk about the first bet. You win it, and it's kind of a curse. I remember my first bet with my bookie. Um, I, you know, I upped it a little bit, and uh, it was football. It was Miami, uh, Florida, and it was I'm playing 52 points to Rutgers, and they won like 70 to 3. Wow. And I said, wow, this is easy. <laughs> this, this is to be fun. And from there on, I just, you know, it continued. And, and you know, in 1994, I, I married my high school sweetheart. I was 25 years old at that time, and if you were to ask me when did I change from recreational to, you know, cross an invisible line, um, it was it was right around that age, right around 25. Do you think there was a, a reason for it? Did you have financial pressures? Were you looking to try to get a windfall, to, uh, you know, you know, pay for a down payment on a mortgage, or did, was it just kind of circumstance where... You just started doing it more often, and there's no actual reason attached to it. I would say that. There was no reason to it. I just progressively, you know, I wanted more. And, and you know, I kind of knew. Like, the book says subconsciously, we think we're going to lose to punish ourselves. I kind of knew that I was going to lose. It was just a rush and sometimes the anticipation of, of grabbing the sports section on a Saturday morning and looking at all these games I have. It's, sometimes that was more of a high than the actual event. Hmm. That's a, that's an interesting way to look at it. Just like you know, the 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 mental gymnastics of going through who to bet on was as alluring to you as the actual bet itself. Is that a commonplace, Dan? Where people kind of relate the entire experience mentally, and do the endorphins start shooting off uh, the way yeah. we've talked about in the past? Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about a video I actually just watched and shared it for a workshop I was doing up in Connecticut, and it was from the British Broadcasting Corporation, and, and what they were doing was taking a look at someone's brain inside an MRI scanner as they were gambling on a roulette table and showing them images. And what they concluded is that it's the anticipation and it's the participation is just as, um, I guess, habitual and potentially addictive as actually taking part in the gambling. So everything Mitch is talking about reading the sports paper, watching the weather channel for the wind direction at a baseball stadium, thinking about it. It's like driving to the casino. You start feeling this anticipation. You know, Craig, when you were going in person, you know, you almost start to feel this rush on your way to the casino, and it just builds and builds. So absolutely, it's the whole process that really starts to become intertwined with the gambling. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I remember when I drove to casinos, you know, in Atlantic City, when I went to that last toll in Atl- on the Atlantic City Expressway, yep. I could. It was a tangible feeling in my entire body as I was uh, now within only a couple miles of the casinos. And every time I went through that last toll, I felt it every single time. It's almost like like a morphine rush. That's really how it felt to me, as I could then see the building, see the lights, and know that I was a few minutes away from sitting at a table. So, All those visual cues, you know, it's that dopamine, everything starts flowing, and, and it's just part of that process. You're right, you're crawling out of your skin to get there. Yep. Mitch, so you're gambling more and more, you're married, you're a young couple starting out life, you know, as a married man, 
Uh, did your wife ever come to you and say, hey, what's going on there? I could tell there's something wrong. Were, were there signs or signals? Were you being secretive and, you know, hiding things from her where she thought there was something going on? Uh, I don't know. I think I did a pretty good job at, at hiding it because I did, she knew I gambled, right? She knew I'd have a football pool from work or, you know, she never knew it was gambling you know, illegally or with a bookie or anything like that. Because um, back then, nothing was legal at that point. Right. Um, you know, you meet the guy in the corner. Um, but no, I hit it well enough uh, where I don't think she, she knew. And I remember the night I told her, I said, I have something to tell you. And she goes, what? Are you having an affair? I said, no. She goes, what? I said, I have a gambling problem. I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And she said her first thing, I'll never forget the look on her face. She goes, Where's our checkbook? Where's our savings books? I'm walking around in ripped jeans, and you're telling me that we're living check to check and that money's tight. And I'll never forget that. And that's, you know, but I don't think she knew. What made you tell her? Was there a big loss? Was there a big debt that was coming due? Were you scared? Were you worried about being found out? Other than just being sick and tired of being sick and tired, was there a, I don't know, an epiphany? Was there a moment where something went really south on you where you kind of wanted to tell her before she found out? Uh, I don't know if that was the reason. I just, I was a slave to it. I had to wake up every day and just keep doing it and doing it. And I was just, I was tired. And, you know, I told her on March 31st and the next day I was, I was in a meeting. Um, and for me, I, if I took any time off or where I thought I had it under control was, was baseball season. You know, it was more, football and basketball is where, you know, so September for me, you know, the change of the leaves, man, oh, here we go, you know, then it's time for me to gamble. Uh, I was just tired of it, and I had some big losses, and I, I think I saw myself just gambling more and more um, dollar-wise, too, where right. I knew I couldn't afford it, but I didn't care about the money anymore. I, I lost the concept of money. And how quickly did life change for you once you started to not just go to meetings, but accept what the meetings had to offer and recognizing that there are so many people out there, men and women, who knew exactly how you felt, exactly how you processed things. Was that a, a quick kind of transition for you, or did you gamble a few times after you first started to go? How, how was that process for you? Uh, I came in, and in my first meeting, it was all about me, and I didn't realize uh, how bad I was hurting others. And you know, I had a five-year-old son, um, I didn't realize how I wasn't being there for my wife and son, um, but it took a while. Um, and there's even a point where after being in this program for uh, somewhere around the 10, 11 year mark, I was on cruise control. I mean, I was doing something right because I wouldn't have made it that long without placing a bet, but I was on cruise control. I wasn't really taking the steps and doing what I was supposed to. And Right. Uh, I ran into some things in my life. I didn't place a bet, but I, I didn't like who I looked at in the mirror every morning, and I wasn't being a, a good person. I was starting that pattern again of just lying and not being faithful, and I know it could have led me down a path back to gambling. So I kind of sat down with some brothers and worked it out and found the steps, and, and the last 
few years have been really, really good. We're going to continue on with Mitch and uh, also talk more with Dan uh, coming up right after this. You're listening to Hello, My Name is Craig, exclusively on Sports Radio 1019 FM, The Fan. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. All right, everybody, welcome back. Craig Carton with you. Hello, my name is Craig. Dan Trelauer, of course, the Council on Compulsive Gambling in New Jersey. You know them better, of course, as 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm going to wrap it up here with a friend named Mitch, who is 16 years now uh, without making a wager, which is great. Mitch, one of the reasons I was glad to have you on is that, you know, we talk a lot on this show about the depths of gambling and the things we lost, you know, in our desire to wager more and not just more money, but just more often all the time we spent doing it. And I thought it was important for people to know that you can get through it. There is light at the end of the tunnel if you're willing to put the work in and be honest and share with the people that love you most what you're going through. So if you don't mind, I was hoping that you might be able to share with people kind of what it's like for you not gambling now and how much better life is and, uh, you know, how you got to the place you're at right now. I think I definitely took the concept of one day at a time. Uh, I was not that kind of person. Uh, most gamblers want everything right away, and my compulsiveness definitely wants me to be on a very fast track. Um, but I've slowed down, and I've really learned to live my life one day at a time. Uh, and I have to make sure that I'm working at this every day, uh, touching the program every day. Um, I listen to shows like yours, and I make sure I'm in meetings or on calls. Um, and I need to just make sure that I'm touching this program faithfully every day because if I don't, um, I have to be aware that, you know, step one exists in my life, and I'm, with gambling in it, I, I don't have a chance at anything. Yeah, it's interesting that you still do that because, and Dan and I have talked about this, one of the... One of the most um, important parts of my journey was that I sat in a meeting and I found a room I really liked and there was a gentleman in there who was about 20 plus years without making a wager. And I, I went up to him after the meeting and I said, it's been 20 plus years. Why do you still come to this meeting? Like, you've got it figured out. It's been two decades without wagering. Like, you got it. And he goes... If I didn't come to the meetings, I would, as you said, kind of put myself on cruise control, and I don't know how we would wind up. So the meetings are the constant in my life that make me feel good about the fact that I'm doing the right thing. And you know, much like you telling your story that 16 years later, you still go and talk to your brothers and sisters that are in recovery and attend meetings, which I admit are not for everybody. Oh, it's kind of a personal thing. You know, says a lot about the power of the fraternity and sorority that other members uh, bring to the table for you. I look at meetings as something that, you know, I went through periods of time where I needed to go, and I want to go now. And I know it uh, doesn't matter if you have one year, five years, or 16 years, we are all on the same playing field today. It is just for today. If I hear myself say, I could never gamble again, I still, when I hear that statement, say, oh, my, ever again? I can't handle that. I have to handle, I just can't gamble for today. Wow. And that's how I live my life. And as a dad, uh, any worries about your son, who I assume is, you know, a young adult now, do you talk to him about gambling, or do you, are you concerned about, 
you know him, especially with the the ease it is to to gamble, which was a lot different than when you were his age. And how do you handle that as a dad? Yeah, he was five when I came in, and it was a period of time when I was in the fellowship, and I think he was around eight. I said, you know, when should I tell my son? And the suggestion to me was, he's eight. Tell him what an eight-year-old can handle. You know, maybe daddy had a gambling problem. That's it. He's not going to understand the rest. I would say about three or four years ago, he came to me and he said, Dad, I'm doing a fantasy football pool with a couple of my friends. There's like three or four of us. He goes, can you do that? He goes, it's not the money. We're just doing it for fun. Right. And I said, no, I can't. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, Dad. I didn't mean that. That's okay. I said, no, listen, let me explain to you. I said, I can't form an opinion. If I form an opinion and my team wins that league, now all of a sudden, I'm, you know, that's with players and stuff, but it's the same thing as handicapping the game. Now all of a sudden, I've formed my opinion. My opinions are doing good. Hey, you know what? Maybe I can place it better, too. And sure. I can do this differently this time. And... You know, I made him aware that I can't do that. And he felt really bad for asking me, but I made him aware to it. And not everybody has a gambling problem. And that's not for me to decide, but for my own kids. And I'm blessed to have three other children that are GA babies and don't know their dad in the in the recklessness, the recklessness of the addiction. Right. And I think that I would bring awareness when it gets to that point because they just need to be aware Got of it. what gambling can do well listen i appreciate you joining us this morning very very much i'm proud of you and uh i think your message is a good one that you know if you put the work in and you're one day at a time and you're you're aware of your addiction and honest about it you can defeat it and uh, i think your story is worth telling and i appreciate you coming out thanks so much for your time today thank you for having me all right be well I Dan, uh, there's one other thing uh, this morning I do want to get into with you. There was an article in the New York Times which I found really, really uh, revealing in how a lot of the uh, online casinos now uh, treat their customers in regards to marketing and how they use their customers, you know, gambling history, purchase history, and a lot of the other digital uh, things that they are privy to to market directly to them to get them to gamble more. And I know you read the same article and have spoken about it in the last week. I just wondered what your take was on the fact that casinos, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them may be aware that someone has a gambling problem and yet they market to that person to take advantage of that problem. Yeah, that, that was some article. I think it came out yesterday and I was as I was reading through, and, and you and I have talked about this in the past, you know, it's, it, it happens across the internet regularly, first of all. In, in any market, someone's always trying to predict the news you want to see, predict uh, what, what products you might want. So they're trying to give you a customized experience. But from the gambling world, you know, you have a gambling operator that hires data providers to collect information about players. And that information could be banking records, mortgage information, even spending habits. And then if, if a gambler stops gambling, they have predictive models to say, hey, we should maybe try to win this player back because they could lead to incremental revenue for our operation. And, and that's a really tricky, tricky slope that they're walking on because those marketing advertisements can be what sends some people back to gambling when they're trying to stop. Yeah, so in other words, for those of you that are listening, they, uh, they run all this data. Like, like anyone does, like you know, if you're online and you go look for a pair of shoes, the next time you go online, every page that you go to somehow has an advertisement for that pair or a similar pair of shoes. So they're tracking your online behavior. And what a lot of the online casinos are now doing, they're using that type of tracking technology 
in a predictive sense. So they'll know this guy is willing to wager on football. He hasn't wagered in two weeks, so let's give him an incentive by giving him a free wager on a football game. And they bring you back in. And what's dangerous about that is that predictive technology can tell them black and white beyond a shadow of a doubt that this particular customer or former customer cannot afford to wager more money because they have a, they know what your credit is. They know what your spending habits are. They know what your income is. And yet they try to take advantage of all that information by bringing you back to spend money you cannot afford to lose. Now, here's what I find interesting about that. The fact that we know now as a fact that all these companies have that ability and do it, I find that potentially a very positive thing. And here's why, Dan. It means that they will be able to pick out the problem gambler or the gambler that is more likely to become a problem gambler well in advance of that event happening. And while they're currently advertising and marketing to that guy to try to get that guy or gal to gamble more, they could also use that technology to stop that person from gambling more and maybe even get the person help. I agree with you. I, I see this. You know, the article itself talks about the, the, the negatives of this technology. But like you, I see the positive potential here. You know, you're turning essentially gambling addiction into computer code. You're right. trying to predict. It's pre- predictive analysis. And you're trying to figure based on speed of play, time of play, you know, canceled withdrawal requests, whatever it may be. There's a, there could be up to 70,000 pieces of information that they're analyzing. And now you can use this behaviorally to say, hey, we better start looking at this player. Put a cooling off period. You know, suspend the account. Let's, let's send some messaging targeted to talk about resources available. Let's have a conversation. So I agree with you. This potentially could be really helpful when used properly. Yeah, especially because I remember, like for me, I'll just use my example because it's real. And that is there were not a lot, but there were a couple of casinos that were willing to give me markers. And, or for those of you that don't know what a marker is, essentially a credit. It was zero interest loan, for lack of a better term, to gamble with in their building. And... There were a couple of casinos that gave me access to money that my personal income didn't support. And the way they do it is, you know, they give you access to credit based on what your income is. They run a credit report on you. And before they agree to give you X amount of dollars in credit, they want to make sure that you have the income that if you lose it, you're going to be able to pay it back. And because I had won so much money in some places and lost so much money in other places and always paid my debt, they were willing to extend me credit that, frankly, I didn't deserve, that I couldn't possibly pay back within 30 to 45 days based on where the uh, the casino was located. And I always think back, and I don't blame them because I was a willing participant in it. I wanted the money. I asked for the money. And they gave me what I asked for, that there are other people out there that are going to be hurt by that same decision. And that is extending themselves too far with money that they can't possibly pay back. 
And, and you know, we saw the same thing in the, in the housing market, Craig, a number of years back when people were applying for and receiving lines of credit and loans and getting approved for mortgages that there's no way they ever should have been approved for. So it's that use of credit and you're overextended to your point. But you also mentioned the credit report. And, you know, I think it takes a, a large community of different stakeholders like the credit reporting bureaus, like the banking sector to kind of come together. If we're going to try to help prevent gambling harm in people, we need to understand that credit score and, and what does it mean and how is it used and, and how much should be extended to the player in a safe, responsible manner. Because we know that most people who gamble can do so responsibly. But, Craig, that number of people who experience gambling-related harms, I think it's just going to continue to grow as, as gambling expands across the country. Look, I had $50,000 in the bank and a casino gave me a million-dollar line of credit. Yeah. Like, okay, if I lose that million dollars, like, I got 50 grand in the bank. Where do you, yeah. where do you think it's, you know what I mean? So, it's crazy. listen, we're going to keep an eye on that because as technology changes, so does the opportunity to kind of protect people from themselves. And I do think there is some responsibility on the gambling operator side if they have the information to use it. Both ways. I understand their need to market. There's a lot of competition for customers, but they also have the ability to uh, protect people from themselves and stop a problem before it becomes a problem. So hopefully as we uh, move down the line here on this show and as these companies grow and the technology gets more precise, we can be a, a loud voice to encourage casino operators to do that. Dan? And I... Yep, I agree. And just real quick, one, yeah. one other point from that article uh, coming out of Britain in 2020, there was a report that showed 60% of the gambling industry profits came from 5% of the players classified as problem gambling or at risk. Well, that's all you need to know. We're going to keep an eye on that and talk about it a lot, I think, in the months to come. Always appreciate it. That's Dan Trelaro. He's the Assistant Executive Director on the Council of Compulsive Gambling for New Jersey. If you have a problem, if you think you might have a problem, if you have a loved one that you are concerned about, you can always make an anonymous phone call to 1-800-GAMBLER and talk to one of their certified staff members. Danny, have a great weekend. Appreciate your time as always, pal. Thanks, Greg. You too. Monday at 2 o'clock, Evan and I are back together again from 2 to 7 right here on WFAN. Thank you for listening. Thank you for considering the message that we're hoping to put forth on this show every Saturday at 930. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you Monday at 2 on Sports Radio 1019 FM, The Fan.